it's not table stakes to know how to code AI, but being familiar with how to interact with AI is going to be more table stakes. But it's already occurring. By 2025, most people in the world who have access to technology will have over 5,000 interactions with AI on a daily basis. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Hey, everyone. We are so excited to share our conversation with you today and our amazing guests. To ensure you don't miss him or any of our top voices in the future work, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and our YouTube channel. Now, today on TDW, we are amped to have Mark Bryan, Senior Foresight Manager, at the Future Today Institute on the show. He leads the built environment, hospitality, retail, restaurants, and CPG practice. Prior to FTI, Mark worked as a workplace strategist, designer, and design researcher, and futurist for clients across the country, most recently through his role as Director of Innovation and Research and Senior Interior Designer. Mark's portfolio consists of clients, including national retail brands, higher education institutions, non- nonprofits, multifamily developers, and large corporate clients. Working with his clients, Mark brings an understanding of the principles of psychology, and I love this part, psychology, culture, and human behavior, which we think is so important to human-centered leadership. And naturally, he knows those things shape and change the future. Mark has authored several white papers and developed research surrounding what leaders need to know about for the future of workplace culture. Mark is also certified by the University of California, Berkeley in using resiliency to combat stress at work. I met Mark at Neocon in Chicago in 2023, and he was leading a fantastic panel full of experts on tactical foresight. And as soon as I saw that panel, I said, we got to have Mark on the show. Now, thankfully, I got to meet up with him. Unbeknownst to me, Mark shows up to the OFS showcase, and he's standing there in the room, and we have this fantastic conversation And we start to riff on all these vignettes around culture, about what's happening, how the future work is going to be shaped. And I said, Mark, I got to have you on the show. So Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yeah, I agree. It was a really great conversation. I feel like if we had recorded that, we would have had a great intro for this podcast. But I'm excited (laughs) to dive into some, some more and include Alex in the conversation too. So that way he doesn't feel left out as well. It's so good to meet you, Mark. So good to meet you. And Speaking of the perfect introduction, tell us a bit more about what is the Future Today Institute, what is a futurist, and why is strategic foresight so important now? So for those of you who are not familiar uh, with the Future Today Institute, uh, we are a global strategic foresight consultancy. Uh, We work with companies, governments, and groups uh, all around the world to help them understand what's coming next, whether that's in the next 5, 10, or even 15 years. So at FTI, we do what's called strategic foresight. Um, That means we use evidence-based methodologies for anticipating the future. And we say futures because when we're looking at avenues uh, going forward, we're not trying to predict things. That's not what a futurist does. That's not what a foresight professional does. What we're looking at is the multiple ways that the futures can play out. Our job with foresight is 
really to anticipate what's coming down the road and then helping our clients to be prepared for those eventualities. So what I do on a daily basis is I work with clients to understand what are the trends that are going to be impacting them today? So what is happening uh, that they need to be aware of? What are they unaware of? Uh, we use 11 different macro sources of disruption, everything from geopolitical to economic to education to look at and develop trends on, again, what's impacting them. And then we also take the other part of the future that we don't know about. So trends are what we can know about the future. Uncertainties are the things we can't know. So right, that could be anything from what is this new reg- uh, regulation going to look like? What is, uh, how are consumers going to be changing? What are the behavioral changes that are going to happen? What happens if uh, climate change continues to disrupt our supply chains, et cetera? It could just be any number of things. So we take all of that and then we develop strategic scenarios, um, which is really just the beginning part of our work with our clients. We develop those scenarios to create plausible, possible futures. And then the important part is we help them turn that into strategic action within their businesses. The way I heard you say it at the event was you bring the future to them today. So just the idea of this thing's happening way out there, but we're going to take all this data and bring it and set in front of you today so you can make decisions on it today. Exactly. You know, one of the things that we, we ask our clients is, do you want to be drug into the future based off of the decisions that other companies are making? Or do you want to drag everybody else into your future? Because I think we have a lot of people who can understand that they are followers versus leading the, the way. And I think everybody probably wants to come to market with the idea that's going to change the market, that everybody else is going to follow them so they have the larger market share. So we can help them figure out ways that they can do that. Let's get into this trends report. Let's talk about the talent piece of it because that is so important to the future of work. And we've entered this AI era, right? In, in your report, the 2023 trend report, you dive into this massive talent gap surrounding AI and that there are three times as many AI-related jobs posted right now but there is a huge shortage of trained workers, right? So in, in, in related news, Goldman Sachs reported that AI will impact 300 million jobs. And thus far, those jobs have been hyper-specialized, but generative AI has kind of opened the door to anyone using AI for all kinds of things. So it seems like AI, um, which used to be hyper-technical, is now going to be start, start to be more kind of democratized and non-technical roles are going to start to use this as well. So the question on everyone's mind, is this table stakes now? Does everyone need to learn AI? That's a, that's a great question. I think it's really relevant, especially with everybody uh, becoming much more familiar with and, and adopting ChatGPT, which launched, obviously, and had one of the highest adoption rates we've ever seen, where people are interacting with it and asking uh, ChatGPT questions on everything from how to write a term paper to help me understand what this white paper actually means, um, or helping me write code. Uh, So it's a very low-code, no-code future when it comes to AI, I think, when we're looking at the workplace. So what I would say, to answer your question more directly, is that it's not table stakes to know how to code AI or how to necessarily develop your own AI. Companies are going to need to probably consider how to do that, uh, depending on which data they want to use. But being familiar with how to interact with AI is going to be more table stakes. But it's already occurring. Uh, Satista put out a statistic that By 2025, most people in the world who have access to technology will have over 5,000 interactions with AI on a daily basis. So I think you are going to see a lot more people interacting with AI. Um, I think that being said, one thing that often gets lost in this conversation is that AI is still about pattern recognition. 
It is fed data for us to be able to then, for it to then process. Now, again, the important part of that is what data is it being trained on? And how is that data then being, uh, like, what is the weighting uh, when you go and ask it a question to have it select which data it responds back to you? Because what people are not really understanding is that they're not pressure testing the information they're getting from the AI currently. They are just going and asking a question and sometimes taking it as truth. But currently, the AI systems, they have the, the possibility uh, to assess which responses are going to be um, correct but they don't always take those responses that are correct, right? That's why you can ask it uh, to write a bio for you and it's incorrect because it's just going off of its own uh, weighted measurement system of how it responds. So I think, yes, AI is going to change how we interact with the workplace. It's just, we also need to be then more transparent with the data that goes into it as well. Well, and just the caveat you said so well is, hey, it's not quite baked yet. It's early days. And sometimes the information that you have is, not right. <laughs> so you better Absolutely. be double checking things before you. Well, we saw that lawyer who who you approached the court with uh, ChatGPT written mm-hmm. um, data, and the it court was threw incorrect. it out. And yeah, and and not only that, but made him. It's unfortunate, but actually, it's a great thing. He's now the person of don't be that guy. Literally, don't be that guy. However, that was really important for everyone to see. Hey, this isn't all the way baked yet. And we have to be very thoughtful and careful and not put our career on the line for, for this new technology. Yeah, I mean, but that being said, there are many companies out there that are using it in the right way. They're using it as a generative starting point. They're using it to help be more creative. You've got structural engineers that are using it to help them uh, compute the mathematics and be more creative with their products. Cities that are looking at it to reimagine what the vacant lots could be what would be the best use for the uh, community. The problem there is what data they're using too, right? So I'm going to keep talking about data because it's not always inclusive of the people that it should. So that's where it's important to be really cognizant of what we want these technologies to do for our companies. That's why it's important to have good strategic plans um, as well as communication. It's so funny because ChatGPT comes up in almost literally every conversation I have with a new client. And one of the things that I just go ahead and coach them on right now is just say, just put out a messaging plan. What does it mean to you as a company? And what does it mean for your employees? Because that fear is just festering right now. People are just sitting like, am I going to lose my job? Uh, I think somebody posted the other day, and I thought it was really well said, AI is not going to take your job. The people who use AI could take your job. But again, talk about what that means for the company. Is it relevant to the company? And if so, what are we doing about it to make sure that we are going about it the right way? Obviously, right now, everybody is talking about generative AI. And, you know, you in your role as a futurist very much pay attention to what's next. Now, we're really fascinated by something that we saw in your 2023 AI trends report. We understand, again, that these are compiled by you and a whole bunch of other folks within the organization. And these are these fantastic reports. Absolutely encourage our audience to go check them out. And one of the things that popped for us is AI being leveraged to detect emotions. And the report discusses using radio waves, biomarkers, facial recognition, and also various players in the space, Replica, Amazon, Effectiva. Can you talk to us, Mark, about how you envision emotion-sensing AI coming to life in the workplace? So one of the things when we're looking about uh, at the future is uncertainties, like I was saying earlier. Part of what we use are trends, uh, which is the data about what we can know about today. 
and uncertainties, which are the things we don't know about tomorrow. So what you're just talking about is what is an uncertainty about what facial recognition could look like or emotion sensing technology could be within the workplace. What we do to answer that question is we look at the data uh, that is present today and then make our use some of the other tools that we have to help us figure that out. So there's opportunity spaces. There's also potential threats where if we think about opportunity spaces could be mental health and well-being as well as safety. Um, I know that there have been some offices that have been using it or looking at it for monitoring employees to see if there are any potential threats within the company, which is a big uh, privacy issue as well as a big kind of big brother issue within the United States. Can you speak to what, when you say the word threat, what would that, how would you contextualize that from an employer perspective? So um, being able to detect if an employee is about to take a potentially violent action being able to understand if there's going to be an active shooter situation within the, the office. So that's, that's one way that it's, I think some offices are thinking about it is protective of being more safe, uh, understanding when people are reaching that stage of burnout, when they are having a mental health crisis. But again, there's privacy issues with that and there's um, big brother issues with that too. Now, there is new regulation that's coming down from the EU. They're banning facial recognition technology in the office as well as emotion sensing technology in the office. And so this is a precursor that we should be paying attention to because there are companies in the U.S. who are looking at investing in this technology right now. And we should be very cognizant that uh, a lot of governments do follow each other very similarly with uh, regulations. And I know there's a lot of AI regulation talk within the White House right now, uh, within the U.S. government about what we should and should not be doing. So I think when we think about emotion sensing technology in the workplace, Obviously, there would need to be the right regulations in place for that to occur and not to completely prevent that. Uh, the possibilities that we could also think about are how it interacts with the wearable technologies and where people give permission for that data to be collected. So if I know that there's going to be emotion sensing technology, I would have to give some kind of permission that would allow my employer to be able to collect that data. And again, perhaps that's done through the camera that sits at my monitor that I've got right here above my screen right now. Perhaps that's done through the, the different watches or the different interfa uh, interfaces. We've also got fabrics and materials that are also now being able to sense uh, our biometrics, where we're able to know what our blood pressure is if we're getting too uh, stressed out. I just read a patent that was looking at implementing uh, IoT sensors into task chairs that would then, um, through other wearable technologies and being able to understand your emotional state, know when you should take a break. That's a great boon, right? Where wow. we would be able to like, think about, okay, our chairs are now telling us, hey, you seem stressed. Maybe get up and go take a break. This isn't going to work for the standing desk folks, but for the chair folks, it's going to be chair fantastic. Folks, yeah, for the standing desk folks, <laughs> sorry, you're missing out now. But I mean, I think we are going to see more wearable clothing too. And so I think it's the integration. And so when we talk about the futures, we look at the intersections of trends, not just like one specific trend and how it could play out, but like, Based off of all of these other disparate trends that are happening, what does that, that really mean? So I think, again, possible boon, but also possible your HR worst nightmare right there. You know, there's two things on that that come to mind. One is coming back to your data conversation. Everything's about data. IoT gives a tremendous amount of data. So putting sensors in everything, everything makes sense because you're going to get this endless data stream and you'll be able to slice and dice that data, do all sorts of interesting things. Um, on the other side, Mark, one of the things, having been in corporate positions for decades, is that every time you log into a corporate machine, right there on the, the screen is a disclaimer. 
that says, Mm -hmm. once you use this machine, everything you do belongs to the company. All your data, every input, every keystroke. (laughs) So in a way, it's kind of already gone. But I do see your point. And it is concerning that, hey, we're entering an era where everything we do, every data point about us is starting to be harvested. And and it's a very kind of big brothery thought of, you're going to know more about me than I know about me. Yes. And the there's this huge trend for personalization right now. One of the main reasons people aren't coming back into the office is because uh, we're all living asynchronously, where we've set our schedules based off of what works for us. And so the, one of the main reasons people don't want to come back is they don't want to give up that that flexibility and that freedom. And so one of the things that we've been talking about is like, what would be the thing that would bring a person back into the office? And if the office is so personalized to you because it, you can know that that data about that person, it can shift depending on what your needs are. That could be a huge benefit that might draw people back into the office space. But understanding data privacy and understanding data rights is not something that most Americans, and I don't think most people in the world, actually have a good foundational understanding of. And so that is a key insight that I think a lot of businesses might want to start coaching their employees on, especially as we get into more cybercrime and cybersecurity issues. As we become more technologically integrated, that's going to be an important skill set that employees are going to need going forward. But let's talk about this. So you've spent a big part of your career focused on being a workplace strategist and workplace designer. And in the 2023 report, you organized, you and the whole team organized 700 trends into 14 <laughs> categories. That's a lot of trends. And we that would probably love only took to... like a week or so. Very quick, very easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. We would love to hear which trends you think will define the workplace of the future. And just feel free to riff on this. Yes. Uh, there's a couple of trends that I think could be really interesting to think about when it comes to the future of the workplace. And so the first one that I'm going to talk about uh, would be digital passports. So uh, digital passports are uh, part of EU, uh, EU's regulations that uh, just came out last year. Um, so I think it's something of 80% of a product's greenhouse gas emissions come from the design process. And so when we think about that, there's and then we blend it with a trend on ESG and people wanting to know where their products are coming from, I think there could be an interesting future for the workplace where with your digital passport that you have on your phone, you could walk around and actually know where products came from, who actually made those products, what are the materials that go went into it, what is the plastic that actually was used to wrap and ship it, you know, along with the other, like, where did it come from? Uh, were there any human rights uh, or human uh, labor laws that were violated? Because our younger generations are really wanting to know this information. So I could see wanting to know the chair that I'm about to sit in, who made it? So it's just about getting more um, detailed information um, whenever I so choose. I think there's also some interesting trends within the China report about immersive learning, where uh, one of the things that I was looking at uh, what for the supply chain specifically, a lot of uh, airline companies are using VR training to train their employees uh, about how to fix uh, their planes in what would typically be very high-stress, very dangerous situations. So think about on the tarmac, where there's other carts and airplanes and other vehicles that are coming that could uh, hurt them. And what they found is that there was a 75% increase in knowledge retention by using that immersive type of training. And so I think it could be really interesting to think about when everybody's talking about 
uh, upskilling and reskilling right now, what that future virtual education space looks like for offices. That could be a really interesting, um, you know, orientation and onboarding could look very differently. Your first day of work when you come in, maybe you go to a virtual pod and you sit and just kind of get your cultural orientation as well as like some uh, virtual onboarding and you get to test and try things out. I mean, again, I could keep going. I think the only other thing that I would say, just to bring back to AI, is that I do think that AI is going to disrupt our uh, searching and information process where we know that SEO, uh, search engine optimization, is, is already using AI. But if we look at... Um, so in our news and information trend book, they talked about how search is going to change and how ChatGPT is being used to ask for recipes. And then it could also then prompt what products uh, you might want to purchase to make that recipe. Um, so there is potential for companies and businesses to be disintermediated or be cut off from the, the consumer group based off of these new searches. It's just totally fascinating. And I love that you get to kind of play this what if game uh, all the time with these trends and extrapolate for where these things can go. And I thought your, your use cases or examples and what if scenarios were, were really rich. I do wonder, thinking about um, the immersive learning through virtual headsets, how much of that is attributed to how distracted we are now. Mm. And this attempt for all of us to be constantly multitasking, the fact that we're inundated with information and notifications and and it does it does really feel like there's so much concrete data that we live in this age of distraction and so it's like put the headset on this is the only thing that you can focus on mm-hmm. but the the lift i think you said a 70 what was the 70 75% 75% yep 75% lift in retention i mean that's that's a huge huge that's tremendous yeah. yeah yeah that's really wild I have one question though about um, KPIs for culture. I know you have a passion for this, and I really want to know: Are we going to see a new era of gathering data on understanding and harvesting insights out of workplace culture? Are you seeing anything in your trend data about hey, we're going to start to measure belonging, psychological safety, well-being, mental health, hybridity, flexibility? Are we going to be able to see this? in a new way, measure it in a new way, and sort of unlock people and culture in a new way? I think we are. I think we're already starting to see it. But I think a lot of people still think about culture within the four walls of the office. And I think that is something that should be challenged because the office is no longer just within the office. The office is now, I'm sitting in FTI, we are all distributed, but we do have an office in New York um, that we go to from time to time, but I'm sitting in my office upstairs. and so this should be a place where culture is considered as well. Uh, one mm. of the things that I was looking into um, during the pandemic were companies that were shipping um, almost like equity packages where to allow everybody to have you know, the same equitable tools within the home, they were shipping uh, things that they didn't have. So yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of talk about culture. Psychological safety also comes up. Um, it's really interesting to watch in companies that don't have psychological safety. It's yeah. really sad, I should say. Um, because more often than not, you find employees that want to change the status quo, but they're afraid of being told that they're wrong or making a mistake. And I think that's where everybody wants to be innovative now. Everybody realizes that they need to be thinking ahead a little bit more. And I think that's where if you allow for psychological safety within the workplace, that will actually improve your your productivity, your uh, your innovation. I mean, there are multiple studies that talk about 
by allowing for outside uh, ways of thinking, you can create your uh, higher diversity and innovation within the company too. Mark, you just finished some really exciting new research on the future of cities. And you're talking a little bit earlier about where people will work, how they're moving, what does culture look like in your own home. Talk to us about some highlights around the future of cities and how do you envision that working in cities might change? I can't share the company that it was for, um, but a lot of what we were seeing was specifically primarily in the U.S., more mobility. Obviously, we know that there's the gig economy and we know that people are moving to where they want to. People are kind of reestablishing where they want to work. And so with this mobility, the other trend that was impacting that were climate immigrants, um, where we're seeing a lot more people move to the suburbs. Um, There's actually studies that show that immigrants feel uh, more safe in uh, suburban areas. And so we've also seen a lot of people are doing an exodus out of the city uh, because they want more space. Uh, they They need a home that allows them to have a home office uh, so they can work. And so there's a lot more thought about, especially when you put it together with 3D printed neighborhoods, um, that you could see more of these kind of transient neighborhoods that are um, built up for those that more mobile population. There's also just more about, uh, and you're, this is something that we've been seeing in Europe for a while now, uh, this kind of like siloed living uh, buildings where you have buildings that contain more than just like a, a mixed use. So instead of just being on the first floor, it's retail. And then you've got an uh, office space above that. And then you've got multifamily. You've got um, pivot spaces that could be inside of it, where you could have a doctor's office one day and then a uh, children's play area the next day. And so I think that's one thing that a lot of people are looking at in the suburbs. A lot of people think about that for the downtown area, but obviously that's harder to implement because of uh, existing infrastructure and costs. Now, in the downtown area, this is where it gets really interesting when we think about adaptive reuse um, and using spaces to bring people back together and ways to help uh, elevate a city's culture. So the the long and short of it is that I think we're seeing a lot more people being more mobile if they are able to, um, as well as being able to just use uh, their data as part of their supplemental income with where they work. So depending on how cities monetize data, they may choose to go and live in different cities uh, based off of if they can get paid more for their data there. Interesting. The idea of, of the pivot space is, is really, really fascinating, in particular of, of how do you have spaces that are, that are adaptable use. I think it is tricky, of course, to figure out what are the infrastructure and resources that you need to kind of reimagine the space and how frequently do you have to do that and what is the level of effort that's required to do so, of course. But the efficiency that it can create and, and just creating a bigger meaning is, is really, really interesting. And also the, the notion of um, cities actually monetizing data for the first time, because that's not something I've ever heard about before. Yeah, and I mean, also just think about it this way. Nobody wants their space to go dark anymore, as well as nobody is really tied to a nine-to-five schedule anymore. So why do we have to continue to think about our buildings being open during the day and closed at night? What we really need to be thinking about is making sure that the spaces and places that we are creating for work as well as for living, et cetera, are responsible to the community that they're sitting within and no longer just thinking about the workplace as necessarily being a place for just the employees for that company. And, you know, we're starting to already see this kind of like fractional ownership happening within the workplace where companies are divesting themselves of square footage 
And so they're bringing in other non-competitors into their workplace. Um, there's a lot of synergy that could be had there that, again, those spaces could then flex to be a community space at night. Um, or maybe it's retail during the day, and then it becomes something else completely at night. I think that flexibility is very desirable. Again, a lot of these are, you should be thinking about them in terms of, is this something that would be beneficial to my company? Not necessarily something that I need to go out and do today, but what is it that I could do to leverage to, to make my workplace better for my employees as well as for the community that I'm serving? Love that. I want to take a step further afield. We've been talking a lot about AI and these other trends. And it seemed to me as I dug into your research that FTI imagines the next big frontier to watch is bioengineering. And now when most people think about bioengineering, they think about Beyond Burgers or CRISPR technology. You guys are showing in your research, it's much, much bigger than that. And another specific example in your recent research is offering direct-to-consumer DNA testing kits for DNA personalized recommendations. And this was really pretty mind-blowing to me. But do you imagine a future workplace that is personalized by DNA, where you've got DNA-based healthcare and benefit plans and other DNA-based employee customization? Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about this? Absolutely. So uh, Amy Webb, uh, who's our CEO, uh, she wrote an entire book on this. If anybody's interested, it's, it's a very, very good read. It's very approachable. Um, it's called The Genesis Machine. What I would say is that um, this is a very nascent technology. Uh, and as you said, Alex, it's very much right now about DNA test kits and figuring out what food people should and shouldn't eat. Um, what are the, the allergens that they might be more susceptible to? Do they have a predispos- predisposition to any kind of healthcare concerns? So the thing about bioengineering is that, while it is nascent, it's speeding up. And I think it's going to begin to have the adoption and integration that we're starting to see with some of the AI technologies. I think this is a long-term play for the workplace, honestly. I don't necessarily see this in the next like five years, but often when working with companies, they are they usually sit within that five-year more tactical strategic planning. So I would say this would be something if you really want to think about pushing your strategic planning, think more in the five to 10 years. So if you do want to be more prepared for that, this, this bioengineering and synthetic biology, you should be thinking about what insurers are going to be willing to, uh, what insurance are going to be covering and what they're going to be taking. Are they going to be able to cover medication that might help extend the life of your employees? Is that something that you want to be able to, to take on? Um, specifically with the workplace, I mean, we're already starting to see our workers living much longer. And what all of this technology is, is leading towards is longer living humans, you know? So what I would think about for the workplace is that that means that we might have second careers as part of our stage of life, which means that the spaces that would serve those employees might need to look differently, especially if retirement ages change for the longer living employees. But that ultimately bolsters your work pool too. I, oftentimes when people think about the future, they, they want to go full tilt and it's going to be completely different and it's going to look so, so revolutionary different. That's not going to be the case for a lot of these technologies. It's going to look very similar, but there's going to be small tweaks that are going to have powerful impact to it, right? So mm-hmm. we're already starting to see in-home testing um, units. Uh, so I think what we could think about for when it comes to biology and DNA, um, there could be new devices that tech, detect um, when you're sick, that could detect if, you, if there is a virus in the air, that could... Um, help clean. We already, you know, Philips lighting already has infrared lighting uh, and UV lighting that uh, allows to like clean surfaces. So there could be a lot more 
a sanitization that could occur with uh, within the spaces as well. Mark, the one that you said that I'm 1000% behind is it used to be a badge of honor to come to work sick. Like, oh, I work so hard. I'll show up. I'll show up with my pneumonia. I would love it if there was some kind of tech that just does a simple test at the campus. If somebody shows up to the workplace or the campus or whatever, and it says, nope, go home. Do, do not come in this building because nobody else wants your junk. And people are starting to do that with, I mean, there are, there are bioscanners that, that can do that where it can detect if you've got an elevated temperature. Um, I know many of the offices that I went to during the pandemic, they would just hold up the, the handheld uh, thermometer to your head and just kind of measure you that way. But um, again, this could be something that happens in the home. Um, is this part of an offering where an office says, hey, we're going to ship you this part of your onboarding as you get the new home testing unit that allows you to know when you're sick and to tell you, hey, your energy levels look a little low or your potassium looks a little low. If you really want to optimize how you work today, we suggest maybe taking this 3D printed vitamin as well as maybe considering to work from this location because it's got uh, better daylight. But again, the, the question that I think a lot of business leaders are probably going to be asking is, who's going to pay for this? That's a great question. Again, this comes down to what is it that you want to offer to your employee? Because not everybody's going to be able to afford this. So a lot of these things should just be thought about in terms of what aligns with our ESG, what aligns with our values, what do we want to make sure that we're doing to support our employees in the right way? And I love that point you made earlier, just that this is not going to all happen overnight and that we should assume that what we've seen in the past is what we'll see in the future, which is that innovation is typically iterative. You know, so many people are completely blown away by AI and don't realize that AI has been around for decades. This is just a Cambrian explosion of the AI functionality and, and, and how we can use it in this moment, but it's been here for decades. People have been talking about it for decades. I mean, since the 1960s, and this is, it's been around. Yep, exactly. Mark, so we've been talking about all this cool stuff and Alex and I are super nerds. And so naturally we're like, yes, let's talk more. This is so cool. These insights are so amazing. This is going to change the world. And we amp up on that, but not everyone is open to this stuff. Have you ever run into a situation where you go in and present to a team or you're on a virtual conference and you're presenting to a bunch of executives and the energy is not open to it. And maybe even they don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen. So can you maybe share a story about echo chambers or if there was an executive team that's kind of like, hey, we're not only not listening, we're going to deny this data that you've put before us. Absolutely. Yes. The future is hard. The future is hard to think about in terms of what it looks and feels like. That's, that's why we use strategic foresight to allow our clients to rehearse the future. Um, there are biological reasons for why people actually are actively afraid of the future. But that's, that's the biology side of it. Within organizations, I have worked with many leaders, um, whether it was as a workplace strategist, as a designer, as a, as a foresight professional, where you go in and you present data and evidence that they just flat out reject because they formed their own opinion and they have created in essence their own echo chamber where they have leader they've put people in places of leadership that should be challenging them but instead prop them up and you know we have presented information that we think are plausible futures and have been actively told no I, I don't think that's the case or we have to go back and prove ourselves and so what we have to do is say well here's here's the data that we have. What I would say when I find those situations 
it's because people are afraid that they have made the wrong investment or that they are just not open to new information. And so it goes back to just kind of, it's, it's very um, self-preservation in that moment mm. um, or trying to prove themselves to their leadership. And it all goes back to psychological safety where there's usually very little psychological safety in those organizations because they don't have the ability to speak up to other leaders. So I think one thing that a lot of people could do is, again, do more research that's looking at things outside of their industry. Oftentimes, um, you know, I think the design industry if, is a, a prime example of an echo chamber where we have got a process that has been in place for many, many decades that we get very precious with, that we don't allow ourselves to push. Um, and we were talking about this a little bit in Neocon too, where we need to be really more responsible with our practice. We need to be more responsible with our workplaces. But oftentimes, we're just doing the same rote process over and over again versus really trying to challenge ourselves to think about what are the ways we could integrate, integrate the community in the right way to make sure that all voices are heard in an equitable manner. I thought that insight, um, there are like goosebump moments where you hear something and, and go, that is so critical. Why aren't we talking more about this? And that one for me at your panel was, you have to be listening to voices beyond your walls, beyond your industry. You've got to stop just being with the same people all the time, all the time, all the time, especially now when things are changing this fast. So I love that about your work. You listen far beyond the walls of company and industry to even go to strange and unusual places to find signals and then bring that to bear. You know, you just shared a few tips. Do you have any other key tips for our audience when they think about how do we do strategic foresight on our own? How do I think more like a futurist? How do I challenge my own beliefs beyond looking beyond their own industries? I just think that's really, really valuable. I think um, it's about setting up practices within the company that allow people to bring in new ideas and allowing that to be directly related up to leadership. You know, it's very important for leaders to be listening um, at all levels within the company and not just at the C-suite level. When we talk to companies about how they want to bring in foresight, often what we do as a first stage gate is just ask them, what are your practices and processes for collecting information? And then what do you do with that information? A lot of companies that I've worked with, they have some kind of trend mechanism within inside the company where they're looking at trends, but they, then, they don't utilize those trends. They don't utilize that information as a way to transform their process. It's just more of a, um, a checking the box. And it often sometimes lives in the wrong department where it needs to be much more integrated into strategic planning and into leadership and those who can make decisions. But again, making sure that they're allowing everybody from the bottom up uh, and the outside in to be able to offer those insights so that they can be exposed to those outside ideas. So just kind of getting those practices set up is a good first step. Mark, we're going to take you into a speed round, some fast-paced questions where you just give your gut response, don't overthink it, and Alex is going to kick us off. Okay. Mark, what's one trend that you are tracking that worries you and people should pay more attention to? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, well, the tech gap. There's a tech inequality within our world um, where people don't have the right access to all technology. And so there's now people who won't be able to access all of these great technologies that we talked about today. If you could wave your magic wand and fix one thing about culture, what would it be? Uh, the need for immediacy and the lack of understanding that um, sometimes iteration takes time. And sometimes good design takes time as well, too. 
What are one or two disruptive trends that completely blow your mind? Uh, well, we've talked about AI and bioengineering. I think some other trends that blow my mind are things like uh, green prescriptions, where people are being prescribed to uh, go outside into nature by doctors in the Netherlands, uh, which makes sense because we all wanted to be outdoors during, outdoors during the pandemic. But now there are green and blue prescriptions where people are being prescribed to spend time in water too. So this whole, whole like Whoa. Uh, nature, that's uh, so cool, <laughs> right? I know. I'm like, okay, does that mean that I get a? Does that mean that you're gonna? My insurance is gonna cover my pool that I want to put in my backyard I'll take, now. I'll take a green and a blue prescription. <laughs> yeah, right. please, so please. The, the green pill or the blue pill, basically. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking right there. Oh my gosh, who is the most grounding force in your life? Uh, that would be my husband. He uh, very much talks me off the ledge. Because, I mean, when you're a foresight professional, it's very easy for your brain to spin off into the, kind of like Alex mentioned, like the what if, like all of these things. So it, he's a good sounding board to kind of keep me grounded. Um, he also is a good person. I mean, there's only so much a person can know. So he has a great expertise in other areas. That's good to kind of just go back and forth to, to make sure that I'm pressure testing myself and some of the things that I'm looking into as well. What message of hope? would you give to all those folks who feel like they aren't being heard at work? I would say that the, the dynamic is shifting. I mean, we, we see these cycles where it's employee focus and then leadership focus. And so right now we are definitely in an era where employee voices matter a lot more. I think there's this, this freedom and flexibility that we have found is going to continue. Uh, it's going to change. It's going to evolve as, as everything does. I think what you're seeing is that there are opportunities where a lot of companies are putting their values out in a much more, um, we're going to hold ourselves accountable manner. So if you're finding yourself in a place where you're not finding that your values align with the companies, there, there are opportunities to, to still find those companies out there that do. So just to make sure that you, you hold your leadership accountable for the values that they put out at face value and that they are working towards those. So it's not performative. Mark. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for your curiosity, for your gift of foresight, for your razor-sharp insight, and for your desire to make a scalable impact and facilitate change. Your work is really fantastic, and you're a tremendous human being, and it's been an honor to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Nate and Alex, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, one last thing, Mark. Where can people find you? What's the best platform to connect with you? and track and follow your work? Yeah, so um, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, as well as you can find us at our website at futuretodayinstitute.com. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future. Work.